Amen. Good morning. Glad to see everybody here. Thank you, Pastor Peter, for the 47 announcement highlights we had. That was like, uh, that was the sermon was over almost at that point. I was like, oh man, it's time to go, you know, but there's still a little bit. I pray that uh, God is blessing you this morning. I, I pray every time that we come together, I, I come early uh, on Sundays and I'm praying for you that you'd be able to just meet God that he would be meeting you where you are. We're in all sorts of different places in our lives, different circumstances, but I just pray this morning that you're just able to touch with God just for a minute, that you'd be available to hear from him and that he would be speaking to you this morning. Okay, we're going to scare uh, our newcomers by doing some shouts. Already? What do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. Amen. And welcome to our last Sunday of our Redefined series where we have been walking verse by verse through 1 Peter. Uh, now, if you've been here uh, for these last eight weeks, you know that we've been seeing how Jesus redefines our reality. Throughout this series, I've been realizing that, that I often navigate my own life as my first reality, not my new reality. Oftentimes, I navigate life in the natural way that I normally would or, or my old self. And it, it takes constant intentionality on my part to navigate in my new redefined reality. Not in the huge areas of life because, you know, mostly they've been refined out over the last 30 years that I've been following Jesus. But I've noticed it's the subtle things, things like, for me, um, the need for approval, things like uh, my own self-interest bubbling to the top rather than caring about other people more, or fear in different circumstances which actually offer an opportunity of faith rather than fear. And so it's always in the small things, as, as God has whittled away some of the major things for me. My small, subtle leanings are the ones that God has been showing me that they have got to be redefined as well. It's not just the big things or the obvious things, but it's the little things in our lives. Then today we're going to finish with a few closing thoughts from Apostle Peter on how to live out our redefined reality. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. And he starts this way, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. And so he starts out this morning, he says, I want to talk to you, some of you older folks, some of you that have been uh, around on the earth a little bit longer. Now in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, this word elder is used in two different ways. Sometimes the word elder is used to refer to a pastor. And sometimes it's referred to, uh, used to be just referring to an older person. Because the idea of an elder in a church comes from Jewish culture. And it simply speaks to the maturity and the wisdom that an older person would have, which would make them qualified to, to lead things and to be able to give wise advice in different situations. And then it was the practice of Paul and Barnabas to appoint elders in all the churches that they meant, uh, that they planted. And so the, what they would do is they'd come together and say, okay, who's wise in this church? Who's, who's able to lead this church? Who's able to, you know, these are all brand new believers. And so which of these believers would have the wisdom to do that? And they would say, hey, would you help out with this? Would you help out with this? Would you, uh, older men and older women, help in these situations? And so there was this development then of the office of pastor, who was essentially one of the mature persons in the church that would then teach other people about Jesus. And so from a mature person, 
then became this teaching person. That's where the idea of pastor actually comes from. A, a pastor is just a, a person that's able to teach God's word and is able to lead people toward Jesus. And so uh, it's a title for pastor, but it's also used of mature believers in the, in the church. This is important for our next part because he gives some advice to those persons. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care and watch over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but, but eager to serve, not lording over those who are entrusted to you, but be an example to the flock. So a spiritual shepherd does their job by watching over the sheep, which means protecting and, and guiding, nurturing, caring for, make sure they're doing well. They should serve God and the people willingly from a heart that loves God people. Shepherds, they don't they don't navigate as if they're the lords of the sheep because the sheep don't belong to them. They belong to God. They're just simply helping the sheep to meet with God, helping them to, to grow near to God and to grow in a healthy, uh, balanced way. They are entrusted as shepherds to take care of these sheep by serving as examples, not dictators or something like that. And so if we're speaking of pastors, the pastor better be the one who's like trying to build you up and care for you and bless you and pray for you and, and watch over you and guard your soul and, and, and this kind of stuff who's speaking life and wisdom into your, into your heart, pointing you to Jesus, not to themselves, pointing you to Jesus, not to anything else other than him. Now, if this is for pastors, then pastors take note. I know there's three of our pastors in here today, but... I want to remind you of this idea that we've talked about before of the priesthood of all believers, where God says, in fact, everybody is a pastor, and so you don't even get to get out of this one. Because at the very least, you're the pastor of your own family. That God has called you as the elder in your family, if you're the mom or the dad of your family. Now, kids, you're not quite the pastor of your family yet, but you might be the pastor of your older, younger brother if you're the older brother. You might be the pastor of your friends because there's no other Christians in your friend group. And so, I don't know if any of us get out of this, that you have to care for those that have, God has put in your sphere, and you've got to shepherd them. You've got to make sure they're doing well. Who's God put inside your sphere? Who, who's God going to put on your heart this week that, that you've got to just take care of a little bit? Maybe, maybe they need an extra carrot. I don't, know, I don't know what sheep eat, whatever. you know. They need an extra something. They need an extra, uh, extra touch of love. They need, someone in your life needs you to, to care for them. Then he continues, said, and when the chief shepherd appears, he's going to reward you. He'll, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So one of the perks of saying, okay, God, I'm going to follow what you want me to do is, is that you get this reward from God, a gift from him, lasting gift, and you get to honor him when he returns with it. Now, crown of glory is different. They were familiar with crowns at this time. An Olympian would get a crown of, of uh, flowers and this wreath of leaves that they would if they won their events, that's what they would get in the Olympics. But ultimately, if ever you've given and received flowers, like uh, I give to my wife, but what happens after about a week? They're dead, right? And you toss them out. Or maybe you press them in a book and save one as a dried flower. But, but the Bible says that you'll receive a crown that doesn't fade away. This one lasts forever. In the same way, he says in the next verse, in the same way you who are younger, so he's talking about older people, Oh my goodness, submit yourself to your elders. What? This is like the 47th time we've seen submit, right? So submit again. A redefined life looks like the life of Jesus. 
And the life of Jesus was intentional submission. Now, in America, we hate this word. Submission's like this horrible word in America, right? America's words are freedom and, like, trucks and individuality, right? And don't tread on me. I got my rights and guns and stuff, right? We got that kind of thing. But America word is not submission. That's not America's word, right? And so we read this and we're like, oh, I hate this. And you read Peter and that submits now. It showed up with governments and, and slaves and masters and husbands and wives and children and parents. And now like older and now younger people got to submit. To, like, what the heck is this? Because the life, a redefined life of Jesus is a life of submission period. And this isn't a bad word. See, if you think it's a bad word, you've been tricked by America and you're like caught in this nationalism or something like that. But it's not a bad word. Submission is a beautiful word. Submission is what Jesus does to the Father. Submission is what, what, the, what Jesus does when he comes to this earth. He submits to the will of the Father, taking on the form of human being, way downgraded because for a reason, to point people back to God. And when we submit, it's the exact same reason, so we can point people back to God. Not so that you could be less or that you're no good or anything like that, but so that you have the opportunity to say, like, look, I'm going to willfully serve and bless you so that I can point you to God, not point you to me, not point you to what I'm doing, but point you back to God. Submission is not a weak or a bad word. In God's view, submission is willingly putting yourself last for the benefit of other people so that you might point them to God. And then he says, all of you, so that younger kids, you know, make sure to submit, but, but everybody else has been included in 1 Peter. You know, every single possible category of people has been told to submit. And he says, well, all of you do this. Clothe yourself with humility, very similar to submission, towards one another. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud and he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So this idea to submit combined with clothe yourself with humility applies to everybody, so there's no getting out of this. It says all of you, submit to God, be humble. Humility is the ability to cheerfully put away your own agenda for God's even if God's agenda is expressed through another human being. It's, it's your ability to say, it is not about me any longer, but it's about you, God. It's about caring for others, not just caring for myself. The phrase, be clothed, translates this rare word in Greek, and it refers to a slave who would put on an apron before serving. In the same way, if you remember, if you know the Jesus story, uh, familiar with his disciples at all, where he puts on an apron and then washes their feet, putting on the garment of a slave to wash the disciples' feet. And he's saying, each of us, that's what we need to do. We need to clothe ourselves, put on this garment of service, and humble ourselves. And humble's not a bad word. Another one that you've been tricked on, if you think that's a bad word. Humbly serve other people and to serve God, just like Jesus did. Here are some marks of humility. Do, am I humble? Am I navigating in the world in a, in a humble way? Well, check this out. Do you have this? A mark of humility is the willingness to perform the lowest and littlest service for others in Jesus' name. Are you willing to do the tiniest thing 
Are you willing to, to move out of your own way in, just to help just a little bit? Another mark of humility is consciousness of my own ability to do anything apart from God. Do I think I can navigate this planet without him? Have I been navigating this week without him? Did I go to work without him? Did I try to parent my kids without him? Did I try to go to school without him? Did I figure I could do stuff by myself? Then that's not the attitude of humility. Humility says, like, God, I can't do anything. I need you in all things, God. The willingness to be ignored by people, that's humility. The willingness to ignore the rewards of the world, to not chase what everyone else is chasing. Another mark is not so much self-hating or self-deprecation at all, but rather self-forgetfulness, being truly others-centered instead of self-centered in our redefined interaction with one another. The Bible is telling us to put other people first. Don't flex, floss, boss, bully, whatever, but serve and love, care, and embrace other people. Not for the benefit of getting the head and not for the benefit of people noticing or saying that you're really great at that or anything like that, but for the benefit of pointing people back to Jesus because it brings God's favor, it brings God delight. So humble yourself, not just to people, but most importantly, the verse says here, humble yourself to God. Allow Him to save you. Tell Him that you can't do it on your own. Acknowledge that you are not self-sufficient. That's tough. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be in control. But when I humble myself to God, I say, God, I'm going to let you be in control. What did we say last time? Jesus, take what's your will? <laughs> like, right? Allow him to guide you. Take yourself off the throne and put God on the throne. And when you do that, he will lift you up. I love that part because it reminds me of that Rihanna song that I like right now. Lift me up. Right? God will lift you up. That was, sounded like her, right? Thank God Rihanna will never see this. <laughs> He'll lift you up if you humble yourself. Comes to this next great verse, totally needed right now. He says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I was trying to think about it. I don't think there's any better time that I can recall in my lifetime to memorize this verse right, than right now this time in human history. Because anxiety is on the rise, depression is on the rise, worry can engulf us and overwhelm us, and so this, this verse is incredibly powerful. We are just talking about humility. True humility is shown by our ability to cast our care upon God. It's a proud presumption to take things into my own worry or my own hands or my own care about things which, which God has promised to take care of. God reminds us that we can cast all of our anxiety on God because God cares for all the parts of us. This is a beautiful verse. In Greek, it actually doesn't say, like, cast your cares to the wind. This idea of casting, it's the idea of taking but putting upon something else. So it's like if you had a donkey and you'd put your burden upon the donkey so that the donkey would carry the burden. So I don't want you to cast your cares to the wind. 
they're going to fly back in your face. Do you ever spit out your window? Yeah, that's how that when you're driving, that's a, you know, or you don't even realize your kid's window's down. They get it. It's not cast your cares to the wind. Don't do that. The wind has got bad things planned for you. But it says, take your cares and place that burden on him. Him being God. Because he cares for you. It's the belief that God cares for us that, that marks Christianity. One of the reasons marks Christianity off as different than other religions. Especially in the Greek world. In the Greek world, uh, the Greeks were occupied with this task of making the gods care. right? To, to awaken the God by giving a sacrifice or doing something for him or, or praying to that God, awaking the slumbering interests of the deity. At their best uh, moments in Greek religion, the gods were good or ambivalent, maybe. But at no point were they ever caring. At no point did they have the best interests of you in mind. The God of the Bible, the God who is really there, is a God who cares for you no matter what. This is a powerful verse in reality for now. As a believer, as a, refined, a redefined child of God, I can give him any and all of my worries. See, I love the idea that it's all of your worries. It's not just the big ones. I think oftentimes we give the big worries to God. But it could be the little ones too. You know, I'm worried of Driving in some snow conditions this week, uh, my family was at, we were in Wyoming, and got a little worried about this Kia Sportage that we're driving in the mountains in Wyoming and snow over. And it's not a four-wheel drive. That's a, maybe that's a big anxiety. That was a little, that's a mediumly big anxiety. It could be the little things, you know? I don't know what your anxieties are, but you got some. Cast them all upon God. He continues, he says, be alert and sober-minded as you're trying to do these kind of things. Because your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is, is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, he's, he himself will restore you and he'll make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever agreed. Amen. This is like facts revealed right now. The Bible is saying, here, I'm going to tell you something that's happening in reality, and so you better pay attention to it so that you don't fail in it. Now, I've watched a lot of National Geographic specials. I love that kind of stuff. And I always love when the lion wins, right? I hate when he doesn't get, you know, they build up, build up, build up, and he doesn't get the little antelope thing. I love when the, the lion gets the antelope on National Geographic, not in, like, spiritual speaking. But, but how do, how do the, the lions and, and all the other sort of predators, uh, how do they work? They, they never attack the strongest, biggest of the herd, and they, in fact, don't even attack the herd. What do they wait? They wait until some, like, one that's, like, gimpy, right? It's, like, a little limpy. And what happens when I see that one? I'm watching the herd, National Geographic, right? There's one that's, like, not walking well. I was like, oh, that one's going down. Or there's, like, a mom with a little baby one, right? You're like, oh, that baby snacks for sure. And then what happens? Blah, blah, blah. The baby can't keep up. The herd starts running, and the baby's like, meh. 
time. And then Lion's like, snack, snack, boom. And then uh, what does it do? It's prowling, prowling, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then all of a sudden, bam, grabs that baby by the neck and eats it. Grabs that sick one by the neck when it, and eats it, that one that's hurting. You don't get the big antelope with, you know, the big man antelope. You know, that's not after that one who's in the center of the herd. It's after the one that's hurting and weak and, and having a difficult time. And, and the Bible says the enemy is just like that. Probably right now, you're not getting a ton of temptation. <laughs> right now, the enemy is like, oh, I'm going to like, right now I'm going to look at porn right in the middle of church. Probably not. I'm, I'm not positive, but I don't think that, someone check Jerry's screen. I don't think that that's what Jerry's doing. I think he's on Instagram live sharing our service with those uh, of his friends. So probably not as we're strong in the herd, but maybe when you're off on your own this week. Maybe when you're alone. The enemy prowls around looking for when you are weak. Looking for when you're hurting. Maybe after a fight with your parents, kids. Or maybe a disappointment at school. Or you've fallen into that sort of self-negative talk. It's late at night. You're kind of alone. It may be when, when you didn't get the job that you really needed or the promotion or the house or, or the baby that you wanted. See, in difficult times and when hurts come around, that's when the enemy tempts. That's when he destroys. That, that's when he doubled down on the lies that he's telling you. We note here Satan's goal, seeking those he can devour. See, he's not just looking to lick or nibble or bite the prey. He wants to devour. Satan will never be content until he sees the believer utterly destroyed. He'd shred us to pieces, breaking our bones and utterly destroying every one of us if he could. That is a spiritual reality that's happening every day. Every day, all day, Satan's looking around, looking around, he sees our herd right here. Where are they weak? Which one's hurting? Which one won't? Others come around. Scanning, scanning. So what are we to do? What hope do we possibly have? The Bible gives us the answer to that. The, the Bible tells us the key to this type of attack from Satan. It's to resist the devil. Speak against those lives. Don't give in, rather stand firm on your faith in God. Faith that you're not alone, that you're not trash, that you're not worthless, that you're not going to fall into the, this temptation. See, the Bible tells us to flee from temptation, but the Bible never tells us to flee from the devil. It says to the, resist the devil. So if there's a temptation, flee that temptation. Don't like hang around the temptation. But if the devil's coming at you, you've got to resist the devil. You've got to stand firm. Scripture urges believers to flee from all various evils, and nowhere are they advised to flee the devil. Instead, rather, to resist him. Resist comes from these two ancient Greek words that mean stand and against. It says the devil come against you, you stand against him. Not on your own merit, power, or ability, but on Jesus's as a redefined child of God. Jesus says, once you are mine, you are different. You have power that comes from me, not by your own ability. And you can stand against the devil and his prowling around and his devouring and his ridiculousness. 
Peter tells us to stand against the devil. And Satan can be thwarted by the resistance of every single believer here. You have power to stand against the devil. Isn't that crazy? But not by yourself. You, you get jacked if you do this alone. Yeah, Satan, I'll stand against you. You're cooked if you do that. But if you say, the power of Jesus, I can stand against this because of him, then you can and you will. You have strength to stand because you stand on the firm rock of, of Jesus Christ. And we're going to finish the letter here with this last bit. With the help of Silas, whom I regarded as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. I'm trying to encourage you. I've been testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, she sends her greetings. So does my son Mark, not literally his son, but son of the faith. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter greets his friends. He tells them to be encouraged by grace and stand fast in it, to know that grace is, is, the, is our place in this present, present time standing before God, that we stand in a place of grace, God's unmerited favor, his goodness, his lean, his love towards you. And then he finishes fantastically with that last sentence. He says that we are redefined so that we can greet one another with genuine affection to have deep, important care and connection between one another. And then to walk in the peace of Christ, no matter your circumstances or your situation. Peace in our redefined reality because it comes from our Savior, Jesus Christ, not our own situations. So I'm going to have the praise band come up at this time. And what a great way to finish this series, though, looking at that last verse to greet one another with deep, abiding love. Now, it's America, so you don't have to kiss everybody after, but, but the idea of that, that close intimacy, the care for one another. And then walk in the peace that comes from being redefined in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so with that in mind, would you stand this morning with me? And, and we're going to, best we can, say, God, I want to have your peace. God, I want to have your power. God, I want to I live in a redefined reality, redefined by you, living the way that you want me to, in, in this beautiful word of submission and humility. Take back that word from the world. The world treats it as trash. But God, that's your treasure. That's you, Jesus. Submission and humility. I want to walk that path. And that looks so different from the world. And I want to look so different from the world. Would you make that confession in your own words right now? And then we're going to worship together.